Good morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, I pray that the covenant of your grace would break through the hardness of our heart and plant itself deep inside the very recesses of our heart, Lord, that we might know your grace, that we might receive your grace, that we might realize you are not looking for perfection but faith. Lord, speak to your daughters this morning through this passage in Joshua chapter 9, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to challenge you with Romans 8, 28. Do you really believe that all things, I'm talking all things, work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose? Who can claim this promise? Who can say, yes, this is for me? Let me tell you, those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. It's not those who never make mistakes, those who always act perfectly. It's not the Mary Poppins of this world who do everything perfectly right. No, it's based on loving the Lord and being called, wanting his purposes fulfilled in your life. Do you believe that God not only can, but will use even your mistakes, your failures, evil schemes against you, financial hardships and deficits to bring you deeper into his promises, to help you understand his grace and to work it for your good, the good in your life, to work it into the grand plan. You know, I remember going through a really deep, dark trial years ago when my youngest son was still in junior high. And it was about a young man in our neighborhood who was threatening my son. And it really disturbed me as a mother, as a neighbor, um, just to think that there was this angst between um, me and another neighbor. There was trouble afoot, so to speak. And I went to church just desperate for prayer. And I remember seeking out this woman to pray for me and this other woman kind of following alongside. And she was listening to everything um, that was going wrong and why I needed the prayer. And this woman kept saying, all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to this, his purpose. Oh, Cheryl, God's going to use this for good. Oh, I can't wait to see how God uses this for good. Can I be honest with you? I wanted to slap her. I know that's so naughty but there's naughtiness in me. But I remember at the time like, no, this is a big problem. I don't see how it could ever work out. And you're telling me I need to rejoice in this, that this is actually going to turn out for my good. I couldn't see it. But you know what? She was right. God turned that entire circumstance around and did such great things through it. I can't even believe it myself. That same neighbor, when we see each other on the street, we embrace, we talk about how much we love each other, the things we have in common. God literally did something magnificent through that circumstance, not in spite, but through that circumstance. But I was so challenged. Do I really believe the promise of Romans 8, 28? 
You see, the covenant of grace, the covenant that we have made by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, brings us into all the promises of God by grace, not by our works, not by always thinking rightly or doing everything right, but by faith. God uses even our failures, our lapses, even the places that we should have known better to bring salvation by grace to others, to forgive our sins by his grace, to glorify his grace so we can clearly see, oh my goodness, this isn't about me. This is about the greatness of God's grace and to show others his grace so that others can say, oh my goodness, if God can forgive Cheryl Broderson, if God can love Cheryl Broderson, if God can even use Cheryl Broderson's lapses, failures, ignorance, stupidity for his glory, then God can use this situation in my life for my good and for his glory and the glory of his grace. You see, we're in a covenant of grace. A covenant is an agreement, a binding agreement that we have entered into with God through Jesus Christ. In this covenant, we belong to God and God belongs to us. He becomes our father and we become his children. We are now forever allied with God. Breaking this binding agreement would result in our life being cursed. But staying in this covenant results in you and I receiving the blessing and promises of God. And it is based on God's work, on God's faithfulness towards us, on his promises. And we sign by faith on the dotted line and enter this agreement. And by this covenant, we are promised that all things, all things, remember failures, lapses, even our ignorance, even the bad things and the good things are working together in our life to bring us victory. That means whether it's the good things we do or our failures, the schemes against us, the hardships, and even our personal stupidity, God will weave together for our good and for the glory of his grace. This covenant of grace is clearly portrayed in Joshua 9. In fact, as we look at this chapter, we will see the power of a covenant and the power of God's grace. Oftentimes, when we look at this chapter in Joshua chapter 9, we only see the failure of the rulers in Israel, and we miss the greater lesson the lesson of grace. In Joshua chapter 9, the rulers in Israel make another critical error in judgment. Remember just the chapter before, actually two chapters before in chapter 7, we realize that the leaders in Israel, they sinned because they did not ask the Lord. They didn't pray about attacking Ai. We realized that they were presumptuous. They had had the victory in Jericho, so they thought we're just going to have a victory again. And they didn't realize that there was sin in the camp, that someone had taken of the accursed thing. And this resulted in defeat. 
defeat in Israel becoming the pursued rather than the one that was pursuing. They were to learn from that lesson to seek the Lord in absolutely everything and not to do anything without consulting the Lord. We know the proverb that says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And we see their failure to do that in chapter 7 resulted in defeat. In chapter 8, they seek the Lord. God has a plan. They follow that plan, victory. Now in chapter 9, the people are still camped at Gilgal. And we find out that the Canaanites in the land have one of two responses to the victory of Israel against Ai in Jericho. We read in chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 9, that the people in the hills and the lowlands and the coast, including the nations of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, join forces. And in other words, they ally themselves together. They pool all of their resources, their weapons, their cavalry, their foot soldiers, their expertise, and their power to attack the nation of Israel and drive them out of the promised land. Yet, there's another group among the Canaanites, which are called the Gibeonites. They're actually among the people of the Hivites, but they break ranks with their countrymen. They refuse to go to war against Israel because they believe in the God of Israel. They believe in the God that is for Israel. And they believe that this God cannot be conquered, cannot be thwarted, cannot be stopped. And they desire to ally themselves with the God of Israel. They have learned somehow that Israel will not make peace with any of the people dwelling in the land. So they scheme. They work craftily, is what the word of God tells us, and devise a plan to deceive Israel into making a covenant with them. They put on a charade of being from a nation that is far away. They pretend to be ambassadors from this far off country. And to make this masquerade work, they take old sacks on their donkeys. They have old wineskins that are torn and mended. They wear old and patched sandals on their feet. And they dress in old clothing that is also patched. They take dry, moldy bread with them. And they visit the camp of Israel. Now, they're taking a great chance here. If Israel catches on to their scheme, there is a very real chance of death and war. But the Gibeonites come to the camp of Israel and they ask for Joshua. Again, they make this claim to call uh, that they came from a far country. And they ask Joshua to make a covenant with them. You see, a covenant in this ancient culture was the most binding agreement possible. The Hebrew word is actually the same word for cutting. Because an animal would be cut in half to ratify the covenant. And what each party was saying is, if I break this covenant, then cut me in half. I will volunteer to be cut in half. 
the fate of the one who broke the covenant would be the same as the animal that was cut in half. Each party agreed to certain attitude toward the other party. They agreed to show mercy, to give life, to esteem and respect the other signature or person signing this agreement. And each party agreed to a certain course of action toward the other, to protect, to spare, and to help. The word covenant can also be translated league because every covenant, two parties, two separate parties were coming into league together with one purpose, one mind, one heart. They were becoming one. Two were becoming one through a covenant. This was unlike uh, today's covenants. We make covenants today. We make a covenant of marriage. We make a covenant with a credit card. That's why you have to, to give your social security number, whereby you agree to make payments to show faithfulness um, and to keep your end of the bargain. And yet we break these covenants, don't we? We take them lightly. Sometimes we ignore, we make our payments late, but we're not threatened with death or being cut into. No, we're threatened with lawsuits, which are not as bad as being cut asunder. It's interesting, though, that the Bible tells us that the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel that he will break. And and that is probably the worst thing that you could say about anybody in that ancient culture is that they broke covenant. Now, Joshua is suspicious of these Gibeonites, yet he doesn't pray. He ignores that check in his spirit. He's looking at everything and something is saying inside of Joshua, something's not right with this. Something is not settling right. And yet he doesn't pray. Now, I love in the book of Genesis, when Rebecca is pregnant and everybody else, including Isaac, is saying, no, everything's right with you. You're fine. You're pregnant. This is what we've prayed about. She's feeling uneasy about it. And she goes aside and she prays and says, Lord, if everything's all right, why am I having these misgivings? And at that point, as she seeks out the Lord, the Lord tells her, it's because there are two nations in your womb and these nations will war with each other. And there's already a prophetic picture going on. You see, when we feel a check in our spirit, when things aren't suddenly right, that is the time to absolutely seek the Lord and say, Lord, what is really going on here? But Joshua instead asks the Gibeonites, perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? Verse seven, who are you and where do you come from? The Gibeonites lie. Verse eight, we are your servants. We come from a very, very far country. Now here the Gibeonites tell the truth in verses nine through 10, your servants, and they're volunteering to be the servants. That's what they are agreeing to. If Joshua will enter a covenant, have come because of the name of the Lord your God. Now remember, the name means the testimony, the authority, what we've heard about God, what is true about his nature. It is the attraction to the Gibeonites is the testimony of God. It's the name of the Lord your God. And when they say Lord, they're using 
God's revealed name, God's covenant name. We've come because of the I am that I am, who is your God. That's why we've come. That's why we want to join with you. That's why we're willing to be your servants. We have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites. These kings, Og and Bashan, these were the giant kings. These were the kings that had the rest of Canaan in absolute fear. And they said, we've heard what your God, not what you did, but what your God did to these kings. And then they returned to the lie. This is where they're finding their protection. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours, we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new. And see, they are torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of this very long journey. Now, Joshua and the rulers, I want you to see in verse 14, their folly. It said, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not seek the counsel of the Lord. It is always folly to not seek the counsel of the Lord. There is a famous saying that says, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. They didn't learn the lesson of AI. That was shame on, you know, Achan maybe. But they must have blamed the whole episode in AI on Achan and not taken any personal responsibility, not said to themselves, now what should we have done differently? Oh, we should have sought the counsel of the Lord. We should have not acted presumptuously. We should have not judged this situation by our eyes and by our ears, what the spies told us. But we should have sought the counsel of the Lord. If we do not find our own fault, we are bound to repeat the same failure again and again. It's always good to seek the Lord and say, Lord, what was my part in this? Now, here's the failure of Joshua. Verse 15, so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Then three days later, Joshua and the men of Israel, as they're marching forward deeper into the land of Israel, and they're seeing the cities that they are going to conquer. They come to the cities of Gibeonites and they speak to the rulers. They come to the city of Gibeon, Chepherah, Berath, and Kirjoth Jerem. And they do not attack these cities because the rulers come out and say, No, look at, we've got a covenant with you. It's binding. You promised before the living God, the I am that I am, that you would let us live. Though the Gibeonites had been deceptive, the Israelites were still bound by the covenant that they signed. They were bound by their word and their promise because they had sworn to them by the I am that I am, the God of Israel. Now, the people right now of Israel are very disappointed with their leadership. 
they murmur against them. But the leaders say to the people, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Verse 19, now therefore we cannot touch them. But this is what we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. Verse 20, see how important this covenant was? To break it would bring God's wrath upon Israel. That's how important, how binding a covenant is to God. So Joshua says, all right, you Gibeonites, I'm going to give you a new position. You're actually going to have a position in Israel. In verses 21, 23, 27, the position of the Gibeonites is given and repeated. They would now be woodcutters and water carriers for the house of God. These outsiders were now not only in a covenant with Israel, but a covenant with God himself and with Israel, the people of God. And they were to be servants to the house of God. They would cut the wood for the sacrifices. That's what they would do. They would provide, in other words, these Gibeonites would now facilitate the worship of Israel to God and the forgiveness of God to Israel. And they would provide water for the tabernacle. But this covenant also brought a curse. Verse 23, Now therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. Joshua put them under curse. The only way that curse would come upon them is if they refused to fulfill the calling on their lives that God had given them. In other words, the curse would only come if they didn't live according to the purposes that they were called. But if they would live according to the purposes of God and they would love God, they stayed in the covenant. From that time forward, their place in Israel would be in the house of God. In fact, the Gibeonites became a people known as the Nethanim. They would be servants to the Levites in the house of the Lord, in the tabernacle and the temple where many of the Israelites were not allowed to go. The Nethanim would be allowed. They would return with Zerubbabel and Ezra to serve at God's temple in Jerusalem. When Saul went on a murderous rampage against the priests in Nob, many of the Gibeonites were slain um, along with the priestly families because they were serving with the Levites in the tabernacle. And God later required retribution from the people of Israel because of what Saul had done to the Gibeonites. In other words, because Saul broke this covenant with the Gibeonites, he brought the wrath of God upon his family and upon all of Israel, just like Achan had when he took of the accursed thing. The tabernacle was later moved to Gibeon, to this very territory of these people who had used deception to make a covenant with God. Joshua asks them about the reason for their deception, and we find at the heart of their motivation was faith. They believed what God commanded to Moses, verse 24. 
because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. But they entrusted themselves to Israel. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do. Look at this covenant of grace. God uses the folly of Joshua and the elders. They, they did wrong when they judged by the eyes and not by seeking the counsel of God. But God uses the faith of the Gibeonites who chose to leave the association with the Canaanites and seek peace with Israel because they believed God's commands. They believed God's word. They believed in the work of God. They believed in the reality and power of God. And they believed God's promises to Israel even more than Israel did. Remember in chapter 7 of Joshua, God's, I mean, Joshua is saying to God, you failed your promises. You didn't keep your promises. Well, the Gibeonites did not have that lapse of faith. They believed all of God's promises to Israel. God was working all of this to the good of Israel. This is what he did. He taught them not to judge but by sight, but to seek the counsel of the Lord in everything. He was disciplining them to prayer that they might seek God's blessing, that they might seek God's way, that they could inherit the promises and receive the blessing of God. This is the key to victory. It's prayer and obedience. It's seeking the Lord and walking in obedience. This is the key to possessing the promises. But he was also teaching Israel a deeper grace and provoking Israel's faith by a nation that did not have a covenant with God. Israel had the covenant, had the promises, but they failed and their fathers failed to exercise faith. Now here are these people outside the covenant who are exercising faith and Israel sees what faith looks like and the desperation that faith um, has to align itself with God and to be on God's side. God uses this to bring the Gibeonites into his covenant by faith. They come in not because of their deception, but because of their faith, because God looks on the heart. Rahab, by faith, was put into the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, the ultimate king of Israel. This outsider, this Canaanite, was brought into the very lineage of Jesus. The Gibeonites are brought into the very tabernacle of God, made servants and brought into the service of God himself. They are the ones who will provide the needed elements for Israel's atonement, forgiveness, and cleansing. But God has brought us into an even greater covenant of grace through Jesus. You see, Jesus was sacrificed for us that we might be in a covenant with God, that we might be brought into his lineage, be made his daughters, brought into the service of our God, that we might help others to receive the atonement of Jesus, the cleansing of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus. We are like the Gibeonites. We might have come in by deception, like the woman at the well in John 4, the Samaritan woman who 
said to Jesus, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You've had five and the man you're living with is not your husband. She wanted to feign deception. And we all pretend that we are something we're not when we come to Jesus. We might pretend to be innocent or ignorant or not that bad, but Jesus knows us. But God is not looking at where we live or who we belong to, our heritage or our past or what we've done. But he's looking at our faith, what we believe about him. Do we believe his word? Do we believe that he sent his only son to die for our sins that we might enter into a covenant with God? Do we believe in the work of God through Jesus? Do we believe in the promises of God? Has our faith motivated us to seek a covenant with God? Do you want to be on God's side with God because he is the ultimate victor and because of the promises that he has for those who love him? and are called according to his purpose? Are we willing to do whatever it takes to be in a covenant with God? These Gibeonites were willing to be the servants of Israel that they might be in a covenant with God. I'm reminded of the woman of Tyre and Sidon in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, who comes to Jesus. And she says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus seems to ignore her. And she keeps at it and keeps at it and she will not stop. And even the disciples become irritated and they say, Lord, send her away. She's bothering us. And at that moment, when this woman was getting on the nerves of the disciples, Jesus addresses the woman. And he says, woman, I was not sent to the Gentiles, but to the lost house of Israel. And she says, yes. And he said, it's And she becomes more encouraged. Now, that doesn't seem like an encouraging thing to say. But we're told at this moment, she begins to worship Jesus. She's so excited that Jesus is giving her any attention. And Jesus said, it's not right to take the food from the master's table and feed the dogs with it. And she said, oh, but even the dogs live by the crumbs that fall from the master's table. This woman is saying, whatever it takes, I will do to be in a covenant with you, to receive your promises and your goodness and who you are. And at that point, Jesus commends the woman's faith and says, woman, great is your faith. It will be done unto you what you ask. And that woman received from Jesus the deliverance of her daughter's soul from the grip of Satan. You see, this woman was willing to take whatever it required to just be on the side of the Lord. We can also be like the rulers of Israel. Yes, we can be like the Gibeonites, but sometimes we can be like the rulers of Israel. We will get it wrong even when we should get it right, even when we know better. The other day, I juiced over a hundred oranges and came out with two gallons of fresh squeezed orange juice and put it in a container in my refrigerator, tried to make room for it. And even as I was putting my refrigerator, I thought this thing's not going to fit. I shouldn't put it in my refrigerator, but did that stop me? No. I put in my refrigerator, the door wouldn't close. I opened it and guess what? Yes. Two gallons of orange juice flung itself all over my kitchen floor, 
making a sticky, awful mess that took me and my husband, he was very gracious, over an hour to clean up. You see, at times, we will trust our eyes, our ears, our touch, our smell and taste more than that check in our spirit, more than that prodding. And we will forget to take counsel of the Lord. And we will try to do for God rather than with, through, and under the counsel of God. But even when we get it wrong, God's grace will get it right because God is absolutely committed to getting us into his promises. And he will use even our folly if we give it to him for our good, for greater purposes, for lessons, to develop greater spiritual disciplines in our life and to exemplify his amazing grace to a lost world so that the lost world will see how we are forgiven, how even our folly and failures work together for our good, and they will see how committed God is toward our welfare and toward giving us his promises and putting a smack dab in the center of all his good promises. And they will desire the covenant that we have with Jesus through God's grace. Grace is God's great exemption to wrath. The Gibeonites deserved wrath, but they were given grace and a covenant with God. Israel and the rulers received deserved wrath because they didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. We deserved wrath because we were sinners and rebels from God. But by God's grace, we, like the Gibeonites, like the Israelites, have received pardon. We've received life. We've received covenant blessing, purpose, and placement in the promises of God. Faith brings you into the covenant of grace. And in this great covenant, this great binding agreement you have with God through Jesus Christ, you can be assured today, right now, that all things, all things work together for your good because you love God and you're called according to his purpose. Perhaps there is some deception that you have used in the past or carried and you still keep trying to carry that deception into the future and you think that deception brought you into the covenant, it's no good to you. Get rid of it. Perhaps there is some folly or failure that you have done that you have allowed to keep you from the covenant of grace or being under the promises. You have to let go of this lie that you are outside or beyond the promises of God. Today, my sister, you are under the covenant of grace and all the promises of God are yours by faith in Jesus Christ. And that means all things. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my sisters right now. Lord, I pray for my sisters right now who are under condemnation, Lord, who are thinking, Lord, that their past deception 
or that you don't know them thoroughly and that if you thoroughly knew them, you wouldn't want them. Lord, you know us thoroughly. You know us inside and out. You know the follies that we've committed in the past. You know our present failures and you know our future failures and you still love us and you still want to give us all the promises that belong to Jesus alone by grace and through faith. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to my sisters. Why every eye is closed. If that is you, if there is something in your life that you've allowed to discredit you or to dismiss the promises of God, if you're saying 95 things in my life have worked together, 97 things, but you're not committing the all things to the Lord, I want you right now to take that thing. I want you to give God all things, all things, which means your failures. It means your folly. It means the schemes against you. It means your enemies. It means your heritage. It means the place you've come from. It means the lies against you. It means everything that God will use everything and anything for your good if you will just give it to him. Take a moment right now and give it to God. Whatever that thing is, the first thing that pops into your mind, the first thing that's laying heavy on your heart, give it to God right now. I'm going to give you one minute just to give it to God. And then um, we'll close in song. Lord, bless my sisters as they commit this thing to you in Jesus' name. Amen.